If you've been tracking through the book of Daniel so far, the historical record has focused on King Nebuchadnezzar, a great ruler and the head of gold over whom God appointed over the nations. Last week we saw from Daniel chapter 4 how King Nebuchadnezzar became full of pride at his status and power. And so God chose to humble him by humiliating him until he came to realize that the God of Daniel, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And the question God was asking us through this passage last week was this, will you turn away from the sin of pride and instead give glory to the Lord Jesus? Now, hold on to this because uh, you'll remember last week I said how chapter 5, what we're hearing today, is a pair of chapter 4. It seems that a great deal of time has passed since last week's chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for maybe 23 years, and it's been nearly 70 years since Daniel and his nation were captured and taken into exile. There is a new king on the throne, King Belshazzar. According to um, a 2,300-year-old artifact, which you can see in the British Museum, Belshazzar was a temporary king of Babylon, whilst his father, the fourth king after Nebuchadnezzar, King Nanubis, was away traveling. Babylon is on the brink of collapse and will be uh, more so and no more by the end of this chapter. You remember the head of gold from the vision of Daniel chapter 2 will soon give way to the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. So I want you to picture the scene. The Persians have been attacking Babylon for some time. The king Belshazzar is continuing to celebrate with festivals without a care in the world. There's a huge banquet with a thousand of his nobles and their wives and his concubines and his wives. Now, at capacity, this church, if you look around the church now, at capacity, we can hold maybe 250 people. And that's a bit of a squeeze. So imagine a venue about six times the size of this church, crammed full of people and food and wine. King Belshazzar is in the seat of honor, without a care in the world. This is his party, and all his subjects are looking to him as the great king, defying the Persian Empire at the gates. Nothing can touch him. As the wine is flowing, Belshazzar gives orders for the gold and silver goblets that have been ransacked from the temple of the god in Jerusalem to be bought in and used for their party. Now, we don't really have many um, articles or objects of sacred worship at St. Luke's today. At the moment, we're using shot glasses for our communion. It's not the most sacred of things, is it? Now, I don't think we're being sacrilegious in doing that, but more that as evangelical Christians, that's what we tend to be here, uh, we don't tend to hold objects with the same honor as other Christians or religions do. But this might be something, so King, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sorry, King uh, Belshazzar taking these goblets might be something like using the coronation orb as a bowling ball. It's taking something really prestigious and special, something that has a distinct and honorable purpose and using it like any other common thing in your house. These goblets were only to be used in the worship of the God of the universe. And here is a foreign king using them to bring worship to himself. 
Worse than all this, as Belshazzar is slurping his wine and it's dribbling down his beard, he and his guests are shouting out praises to false gods of his kingdom. The gods of gold, of silver, of iron, wood, and stone, verse 4. King Belshazzar is saying that he is more important than God. That he is more powerful, that he is more, that he is the true ruler of everything. And that his gods are more worthy of honour. That these goblets used once to worship our God and king, the king of Israel, aren't even worthy enough to be used in service of their gods. They're just fit for being drunk at at parties. How wrong he is. Last week we were warned how damaging pride can be. When we put our praise in our achievements or our strength or our intelligence. And we saw the restoration that comes when we turn away from the sin of pride and put our praise in Jesus instead. We are about to witness the destruction that comes on those who do not heed the warning and continue in their pride. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. The king watched the hand as as it wrote these four words. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees began to knock together. It's like a comic book, isn't it? In his mercy, God often sends the world signs to turn away from their selfish ways and their pride and to turn to him as the one true God. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes this in chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, is saying that the God of the Bible has clearly made himself known to the world in a clear and obvious way. But instead of people looking on his creation and saying, God did this, they've been rejecting him. Or worse, turned their worship to the good things he has made. Perplexed and terrified, King Belshazzar calls in the wise men of his land to tell them, tell him rather, what the writing means. But none of his so-called wise men can help. Do you know that there's been a huge spike in spirituality around the world since the COVID pandemic. The world came face to face with our mortality and we became scared. People are more religious than ever, not less. And people are more open to spiritual explanations to make sense of the world we live in. And so people are looking especially to new age and spiritualism and yoga and universal energy and crystals to find meaning and purpose in a chaotic and apparently meaningless world. But these things may bring a sense of calm. They may bring a veneer of peace, but 
They can't provide meaning. They can't answer your deep questions. In our passage, the queen remembers from the past that there was a man in the service of a former king who had wisdom like that of the gods. Wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. And in Babylon, there was still a man, an aged man, but a man nonetheless, who feared the Lord. Daniel. So Daniel is brought before the king, verse 13, and the king does his best to sound regal and in control, offering the nobility of being the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I mean, just reflect on that for a moment. It's a bit of a joke. Here is the king, his city surrounded by an invading empire, his time on the throne, hours maybe, and he still thinks his offer is generous. Now, remember, Daniel is an old man at this point, perhaps in his mid-80s. An honorable man who has demonstrated self-control, wisdom, and loyalty to God his whole life. And in front of Daniel sits a drunk young king, lacking in wisdom, with little self-control and no fear of the Lord in him. Daniel tells the king to keep his hollow gifts in verse 17, but will interpret the writing. From verse 18 to 21, Daniel recaps what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, the great, great, great grandfather of this young king. How God had made him the most powerful man in the known world, and how God had humbled him because of his prideful heart. Our story from last week. Daniel contrasts the humbling humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar with the prideful arrogance of this young King Belshazzar who knew all that happened, yet did not humble himself. Did you know, the Bible is the most read book in the world. In universities around the globe, the Bible is regularly opened and read, and its words dissected and its meaning explored. It's held in high esteem for its complexity and its poetry and its beauty. I was listening to a debate the other day with uh, Richard Dawkins, who you might know as a quite a famous atheist, um, fallen out of favor now, but, but once upon a time ago was very famous. And in this podcast, he was saying, what a beautiful book the Bible is, what beautiful words and poetry it holds. It's no surprise, Richard Dawkins does not believe that these are words of the living God. He doesn't heed these words as having ultimate meaning in his life. There are millions of people around the world who have engaged with the Bible at some level, who have even quoted it unwittingly. But for them, it's just a book of words. For them, there is no power in these words. How wrong they are. These are the words of eternal life. That's a bit like what's going on here with Belshazzar. He's heard the stories of what happened to his great, great, great grandfather, but that's all they are to him, stories. Told at bedtime to young princes to scare them or shared around the campfire on a dark night. Verse 22. But you, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand to write the inscription. 
Finally, Daniel translates and explains the four words for the king, verse 25 to 28. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can see the translation of these words in the footnotes. Mene, mene, which means counted, counted. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. Tekel, which means weighed. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parsin, which means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Our chapter ends with Daniel being rewarded and the king being assassinated, marking the end of the great Babylonian empire. It's a severe message for the king, isn't it? But there is truth here for us all today and for the whole world. Counted, counted, according to God, he has numbered each of our days. For our dear sister Wendy yesterday was the exact day God had appointed to call her home to him, so the Bible says. There are numerous passages that testify to this. One of my favorite is from Acts chapter 17, where God tells us that he has determined the times set for everyone in the world and the exact places where they should live. It's no accident. And we've heard time and time again in Daniel that God is sovereign, that he is in charge and in control of the universe, that he sets up and brings down leaders. Verse 21 from our reading, the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them whoever he wishes. Right now, as we look around the world, we see turmoil and devastation. And Simon led us in prayers on those just now. With leaders like Vladimir Putin forcing his power over Ukraine still. And the awful events taking place right now in Palestine. God is sovereign over these leaders. And he is sovereign over these events. I don't know why he is allowing these things to go on as long as he has. I don't know why he is allowing these awful things to happen, and they are awful. But make no mistake, sisters and brothers, God is in control. And at the perfect moment, he will bring all this to an end according to his purposes. God has counted our days. Weighed. There will come a day when God will raise to life everyone who has ever lived and he will judge the living and the dead. We don't talk about God's judgment very much, I certainly don't. It makes me a little nervous to talk about it, if I'm honest, because it's not a nice thing, is it? It's not something you share in polite public company. But sisters and brothers, this is a foundational belief in our faith. So much so that it's part of our creed, our core statements of belief. There is judgment to come for everyone from God. In the book of Revelation, this is described as a time where God will look in the books of the records of our lives and he will judge us. Every evil thought, every wrong deed, every time I have not kept God's good and clear commands, all of it will be presented before me. And I will have to give an account to God himself. We all will. As a vicar, a teacher, 
This makes me more concerned for how I lead God's people, how I lead St. Luke's church. Because God always has the most harsh judgments for those who he has entrusted to care for his chosen people, the shepherds and teachers. It's throughout the scriptures. When Jesus walked on his earth 2,000 years ago, his most harsh words and fierce judgments were to the priests and the teachers of the law. In James chapter 3, Jesus' brother wrote this, Not many of you should become teachers, because we know that God will judge us more strictly. All who've been appointed to teach God's children will have a more strict judgment for how they have taught God's good and perfect ways of righteous living or for where they have led people into sin. From our preachers here at St. Luke's, Di, Gina and myself, up to the Archbishop of Canterbury, there is a judgment to come. The Bible is clear on this. Jesus talks about it a great deal and warns us about it clearly. In fact, Jesus begins his ministry by telling people to repent and believe because there is a judgment coming for us all and the consequences of living in unrepentant sin can be catastrophic to our eternal life. Judgment is an uncomfortable subject. We might ask, how can God's judgment be fair? This is a big topic, but hear me when I say that God is real. I believe he is. And if the Bible is the book of words God himself has chosen to give to us to reveal himself, which I believe it is, then the Bible tells us that God knows all things, that he has perfect and complete knowledge of everything. And so when he makes a judgment, he has every fact about it before him and won't be underhand or impartial because that's not his character. But let me say that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are right. God's judgment is unfair. Because God will examine our lives and he will lay bare what we have done. But rather than you and I facing the punishment we rightly deserve for our consequences, for our innumerable sins, God himself took all our punishment in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The God I trust is not a God of karma, where what we get out is what we put in where our good deeds are weighed against our bad. The God I trust, the God of the Bible, is a God of grace, who in his mercy has made a way to overlook all my innumerable sins, so that I can be spared the severe judgment my life so far deserves. If you've not turned to Jesus as your saviour, pay attention to the warning that King Belshazzar and so many millions of people down the centuries have ignored. Read the historical record of his mighty deeds and his saving grace recorded for you in his word, the Bible. Read it and believe that this is true. Turn away from your life of rejecting Jesus, of living for yourself and not for God. Turn away from your pride 
and turn to the loving embrace of Jesus. Pray for God to fill you with the gift of his Holy Spirit and receive a new life in the name of his son, Jesus. Look at the wounds his body bore to rescue you from the judgment to come. And in love, give yourself to him. He has promised that he will never reject you. Reading the Bible, coming to church, these are small steps in the right direction. Come speak with me after the service if you'd like to know more. Let me close with the words of Psalm 103. And I began our service with part of them. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The Lord will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high are the heavens above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Please bow your heads to pray. Father God, as we look at the story of these two kings, King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar, we thank you for your word and the warnings you give us. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to the warnings you gave to King Nebuchadnezzar that we would turn away from our pride and our self-sufficiency and turn to you as saviour and receive the abundant blessings you offer us in doing so. Use us, Lord, as your children to spread your word around, that where many have heard these stories like Belshazzar and have chosen to ignore them, you might be so pleased to use your children here at St. Luke's to explain those words and in the same way you use Daniel to warn the king of a judgment to come, you would be pleased to use us. Give us courage, Lord. Make us brave. That when we hear this subject of judgment, we wouldn't turn deaf ears and we wouldn't run away and we wouldn't try to remove them from your word. But instead, Lord, we would heed the warning and we would thank you for your son taking the full weight of it in our place. Thank you for your mercy, Father. Amen. We'll now sing our next song.